Chapter 15 of Joaquin, the Claude Duval of California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Joaquin, the Claude Duval of California, or the Marauder of the Mines, a romance founded on truth by Henry L. Williams. Section 15, The Journey, the new headquarters, the plan, repulsed at the ranch. The journey did not suffice to distract the captain of the banditti from his constant reveries. The memory of his last affair with the party of self-appointed police still tortured his mind. Though it had been almost completely defeated, nevertheless he paid very dear for an unconcernable victory and was compelled to acknowledge the powerlessness of his men at close quarters with the brave by intelligence men of the superior race. He regretted that the whole of his troop was not composed of individuals as active and fearless as Three-Fingered Jack, Valenzuela, Antonio, and Guerra. Enraged at having let Arkansas escape, he was compelled to admit as well that the redoubtable Garcia was neither invulnerable nor successful all the time, and that he was no longer the inconquerable of other days. He was the strongest, the cruelest, the most cunning and resolute of all his cutthroats. He had been Wylam the favorite, the right-hand man of Gerada, the famous guerrilla. Moreover, he was wonderfully assisted by a long experience— carrying on his body scars of many wounds received in numberless actions. If this champion had come off only second best in a fight with Arkansas, no wonderful man, would the rest of the gang be well off when pitted against fellows of that stripe? It was not probable. Joaquin was sure that his interest enforced his avoiding any heavy contest with the followers of justice, Regulars or Irregulars A combat of this nature, even admitting the result to be fortunate to him, would deprive him of a number of his foremost men, not to be replaced without time and difficulty, which would be a serious obstacle to the carrying out of projects which he had been forming at the setting out on his marauding career. These reflections, and many others springing from them, greatly clouded Marietta's brow. For the first time he experienced a sharp and weighty desire of flinging to the winds and waters the guilty existence which he had hitherto led, to withdraw into his native country with his well-loved Clarina. The latter, meanwhile traveling in the rear of the main body, surrounded by the associates of her own sex, who were not at all affected by any forebodings, was yielding to impressions quite the opposite to those which swayed her lover. She was as merry and laughing as could be. She was amusing herself perforce and vying with her companions in a kind of pastime in which the victor was the one who was the most mirthful. The countless echoes which were bandied back from either enclosing line of rocky steeps repeated their songs and peals of merriment until it might have been believed that it was a virgin forest of the tropics full of bright birds with melodious throat. After having traversed the rich hollows which extend northward 
of Tulare Lake, the Mexicans crossed the San Joaquin River some 12 miles from Fort Miller and pushed on towards the northeast as far as the falls of the Ohamity. Thence, passing the stream again, they worked toilsomely up the Sierra Nevada, then down into the pleasant, the delightful, and tempting valleys on the other side, and at length reached the mountains on the east of Lake Mano. In their gullies, clefts, and passes, the outlaw, at the commencement of his adventures, had found shelter from some volunteer constables who had chased him and his then insignificant allies from Hangtown to Castle Peak, not far from the Sonora Pass. Since then, he had always looked upon this spot as the best and surest hiding place in the whole state. The chief took the lead through a narrow path which would have been past suspicion so completely had nature taken pains to dissimulate it by means of precipitous rocks and superabundance of vegetation. And when they had entered by it, they were in as retired and picturesque a sight as they could have fancied. It is a mere cleft in the heights about five and twenty miles to the southeast of Lake Mano, between two rugged walls crested by masses of stone and earth toppling over as if to fall. If these sides of the narrow way were climbed, the country would be surveyed for miles around. In this wild place, near a region well-stocked, if the term will pass, with red, gray, and desert foxes, coyotes, wolves, and grizzlies, the robbers pitched their tents. The shades of evening were already stealing over the sky and earth. All around seemed to invite to repose the adventurers, who were temporarily out of the reach of their sea of troubles. On the perfumed sward of mingled grass and moss, in their ample blankets they slumbered until morning. With not one guard afoot, they slept no less peaceful and deep than that of men whose hands had never been imbrued in blood, whose hearts had never been darkened by even the idea of criminal desire. But it was the wearisome journey which fear of merited judgment had impelled that had alone given them this short stay of punishment. The most hardened feel pangs of which an honest man never can dream of far beyond any of his earthly inflictions. On the morrow, the outlaw assembled all about him and laid out before them his plans and ideas as to the future. You know, he began, that we count 100 in active surface. Our spies, friends, and associates scattered all over in almost all the towns and camps of the state are nearly 400. These allies can only aid us verbally. I mean by information which they procure for us. They cannot lend us any open assistance for reasons which it is useless to explain to you just now. I hold in secure places considerable sums, and my intention is to raise from Sonora and Lower California a certain number of recruits who will bring our forces in the field to 300. I will equip and arm these new hands and will begin a sweeping business in the southern counties. I will destroy the Yankees by wholesale, 
burn their farms, overrun their property, and do it all so rapidly that they shall not have time to collect troops and organize resistance. By the time they are sufficiently powerful to fetter my further movements, I will have finished my task and sought shelter in some of the Sonorian Sierras. When there, I will give goodbye to the life of roving and adventures which we have led together up till now. In this way, friends, we will have taken vengeance for the evil done to us and some surplus for the wrongs which the Yankees during the last war wreaked upon our unfortunate country. We will do our share towards wiping out the cursed race, just as they have destroyed the Buckeye Nut Eaters. We will divide the spoil of the expeditions and let the rest of our days roll on in peace. Long life to the noble captain, cried every man, long and loudly. Enthusiasm kindled every eye. The splendid picture which had been enrolled before them was so dazzling the design displayed so unexpected that the bandits could scarcely contain their joy. Although they had always loved and admired their superior throughout all the phases of his dangerous existence, none of them had given him credit for what they esteemed as genius discovered in his projects. His speech electrified them with fresh energy, and more than ever were they eager to follow and obey him come what might. That same day, Joaquin told off eight companies of ten men toward different parts of the state, to the east, south, and north, with the express order to procure money and horses with all their might and main. He himself remained at the rendezvous with twenty-five, whose only occupation was the killing of game and watching over the horses and weapons. Few days passed since the departure of the little divisions in which interval the wounded had recovered. Joaquin, seeing all he had in efficient state, took with him Valenzuela and Three-Fingered Jack and a select party and went off on a scout in for any enterprise that offered. Antonio Guerra and the remainder were to protect the camp and the women from the roamings of the wild beasts which had not quitted the neighborhood despite the successive hunts which had been made upon them, and the unpleasant acquaintance many of them had made with the firearms and steel of the band. On arriving at Fiddletown, Joaquin met the captain of one of the troops, who had a bag of gold coin to give him, and a bit of news which gave the direction to the leader's move. Darkness had stolen upon Jackson, but not so deeply as to prevent a dim, pleasantly vague view of the town and its surroundings. A ranch, which an American named Fairgrove had purchased years before and since enlarged into a double house of two stories in height, occupied by him his wife and a widowed sister, and two of her children, a girl with whom we have little to do and a boy of 14, sat upon the side of a gentle acclivity about a mile from the town and a quarter of a mile from the road. 
Down to the road from the front of the house, the ground was almost all wooded. Behind and in the valley, it was under cultivation, and the products brought, quote, unquote, gold prices from the mining population. Now Fairgrove, who had been twice a loser of several valuable horses, no doubt through Joaquin's band, had tried to take revenge by doing all he could to have that robber taken, and half a dozen times, when applied to, he had loaned horses to suddenly organize constabulary forces. He had made himself prematurely old by abuse of liquors and was prevented going out thief-hunting himself, where he would surely have been at the head of a party. Rumor had it that the marauders had taken up in those parts once again, and as ill luck would have it, a most powerful and valiant dog which belonged to his ranch had been shot accidentally by Fairgrove's young nephew, who was practicing at a mark as a study, as in more peaceful countries he would have had Latin or French or bookkeeping or what you will to do. The animal had not been killed, but to shorten his agony, a finishing stroke had been dealt him. For two days, Mr. Fairgrove had been going to town to buy a guardian to replace the lost one, but he was of an easy nature. As the requirement was one in which the women folk had interested themselves, for they drank in greedily all the outrageous stories of the exploits of the celebrated bandit, the ranchero had yielded at last to the dropping fire but continual and rode over to Jackson to make the purchase. This was at noonday. He dined with a friend and took a stroll about the town to see the new buildings run up since his last visit. It chanced that a company in which his companion was concerned had the great good fortune to turn up a large nugget, which led to a general rejoicing by all concerned. You could not rejoice in California without the very natural concomitant, a punishing of the oh, be joyful. Mr. Fairgrove had hardly returned to his friend's abode than he laid down to rest. He was aroused at twilight for supper. Had supper time come? Good heavens! Phew! Won't they haul me over the coals at home? I will take a taste of that brandy just up from Frisco, and must be off. Oh, I ain't afraid on the road. Pooh, tush, bah. And off rode Fairgrove at full speed. As a speedy arrival was his only wish for, though of course the non-prosecution of the canine demand would still be a great grievance against him. If he should not be home, he knew how his family would cry out against having been left for one whole night with only a lad of fourteen in the house, for the stablemen and farmhands lived in buildings two hundred feet and more from it. As a speedy arrival lay closest to his heart, he not only spurred on at his fastest, but struck off from the road across a neighbor's land and entered his estate by the valley. The remaining effects of his libations not altogether slept off, prompted him to attempt a little innocent practical joke. He let his horse loose and, hiding the harness in a bush, crept under cover up towards his house. 
he was already chuckling at the fanciful picture which he drew of how he would be mistaken for a robber and how all would end in laughter so hearty as to cover his sin of omission. All at once he stopped. Two of his men had come out of the stable. Two of his men? No, good God, no. This couple were sheathing knives and were stealing along towards the house. The fumes of liquor yet clouding the watcher's mind vanished at this appeal to his affection and to his fears. This couple were assassins, and all the workmen had been murdered beyond a doubt. He gripped his revolver nervously, and inspecting the nipples, all the caps were on. The two men had crept up under the extensive veranda, piazza, ground floor balcony, or whatever you like to style it, which ran around the whole building. Fairgrove braced himself, ready to run up and slay one or both before they should make an entrance. But neither climbed over the railing, but crouched down and glided under the stoop, after cleverly and noiselessly ripping off a board. There was a hollow space under the veranda of many feet long and wide and three feet high. As if their disappearance were a signal, two other men appeared over by the outhouses and carefully made the same transit, burying themselves in the same way. Two more couples and at last one man. All was still and Fairgrove might have doubted his vision, especially as the displaced plank had been fitted in again. What pained him more, so poignant, was the proof of his family utterly unsuspecting the impending fate, was that there came faintly to him a snatch of a song or a light laugh which were uttered by his young niece. He thought for a moment of rushing to the house and standing before the opening, prevent the thieves from the movement until assistance should have come. But he remembered that window, only rudely boarded over, opened from the cellar into under the piazza, and he was quite confident that the concealed villains had already discovered it. His men, being all disposed of, no assistance was about the premises. He could delay but not prevent the murder of his family in the cleaning out of his house. He took the course which was hardest and might or might not be the best. He could only go mad if they should all be slain in his absence. He never could tell how he hastened back to where he had turned his horse adrift, found him, caught him, bridled and saddled him, and dashed off more directed by instinct than by calculation. All he knew, he reached the nearest neighbor's house after an hour's maddening ride and burst in upon the supper table with the wild, crazy cry. Haste, if it is not till all are asleep that they are waiting, goodbye to them. The moment he grew cooler and told all, the friend roused the household and set off back with him, sending one of his sons to town and another to the nearest miner's camp, which was on the road. As these latter would have the road to travel, they would probably reach the scene before the others, who had almost unbroken country to cross. If their signal should not be answered, they were to wait, unless, of course, something was occurring in or about Fairgrove's house. 
It was Joaquin's men under the command of Garcia who had made the descent on the ranch of Fairgrove. They had heard of the dog's death, and as they were all the more sure of success from that fact, which promised more likelihood of a perfect surprise, they had began, as we have seen Fairgrove suspect, that is, had mastered the tenants of the outbuilding just at the moment of their entering their dwelling at dusk. Masters were not very exacting when a harsh word or a cross look would often send a man off to the digging, whose place it would perhaps be impossible to fill at the most exorbitant of wages, hence the short hours of labor. Garcia had wanted to begin the proposed butchery at once, but Valenzuela, who was second, had persuaded him that it would be better to wait until eight or nine, when all would be asleep throughout the house. They did not know that the master was away, and gave the lad of fourteen credit for more prowess than he perhaps possessed. Perhaps you will wonder why the robbers did not charge without delay, as here were only two males against their eight or nine. Yes, but these fellows had found by sad experience that the few women who were blessing the rude state then were, if beautiful ancestress of the fair daughters of El Dorado's brilliant today, made braver yet by encompassing perils of exposed life, and were seldom so unluckily gifted with stupid relations as not to be compelled to learn to put a half an ounce of lead into the bullseye plumb center at a reasonable distance. All of which Amazonian discipline was accomplished at no expense of modesty, a fact which women who have had their own honor and dear ones to defend will understand, if our other readers do not. All this time frightening themselves for nothing without dreaming of their really being great foundation for their fears, the females were supping uneasily and almost afraid to retire to rest. The chamber they occupied, for they would not leave one another, was on that side where were concealed the thieves. The servant and the children were in the other part. The miners who had been found at their encampment by the messenger had instantly responded to the call, and on horses or pack mules, as the case might be, they had dashed along the road, only dismounting at the entrance to Fairgrove's ranch. Thence they ran along quietly but quickly. When they came in sight of the house, they twittered out the signal, an imitation of a bird. No response, so they waited. But very restlessly, though, for they started at every noise. At last, though, only a few minutes had passed, and one or two lights showed yet in the house. It was deemed best to forestall the bandits' moves. They left the shadow of the trees and proceeded along the side of the house in hopes of surprising the enemy, when a loud scream inside was followed by a hammering as of a pistol butt on a door, and that by a shot. At the same time that the miners raised a cheer to appall the assailants and to encourage our friends, another shout joined in with theirs, and a number of men appeared on their right, speeding toward the house like themselves. Both parties of rescuers were on hand, not too early either. One smashed in the piazza windows in front, the other forced a back window, and four or five daring men 
boldly penetrated the empty space under the veranda and went through the window into the cellar which had been opened. Some time before this, the women had consulted together on their heartlessness in leaving the young girl, the servant, and the youth so far away. They resolved to have them come over to their part of the house, the females to stay with them, the lad to occupy the adjoining room. After a delay, Mrs. Fairgrove's sister-in-law valorously determined on executing the delivery of the desire, and on passing along downstairs, across the main room and upstairs, again alone and in the dark, for she preferred, with another feminine trait, not to have a chance of seeing what she dreaded. With prudent preparation, she took off all her jewelry and put it in her pockets, winding her handkerchief round all to prevent jingling, and removed everything light-colored from her dress, which was deep mourning, fortunately. She went in her stocking feet. She left the revolver they had with her sister, gave her final directions, and slipped out of the narrowly open door. She descended untouched and entered the main room. As she did so, she heard on the other side the words very faint, Shh, back. She went on, feeling for the chairs and table, and for an instant did not glance thitherward. When she did, she thought she saw that the door, which led to an entry and by that to the cellar, was not quite closed, and she doubted not that a white dot she noted about four feet from the floor was a finger holding it ajar. The person, if there was one, had been about to enter when she or something else had alarmed it. This was one of the moments when everything depended on taking the proper course out of half a dozen. If she continued her way, their return with the children would it be intercepted beyond doubt. If she flew back to her sister, the house was divided, and each would hear the death struggle of the other. Like lightning, she sprang to the door and threw her whole weight against it. A deep, though not loud, exclamation of acute pain told her the strange sound she heard was the snapping of a finger bone. The door would not shut. Had it been farther open, it would have severed the finger. It crushed it and tore the flesh off one of the bandits as it was. She dragged the table to her and jammed it against the door, closing fully now, and bolted hurriedly. The key was gone, lost long ago during non-usage. Like one inspired, she heaped up chairs and everything within reach to add to the barricade. Pistols, bullets, and knife handles began to hammer at the upper panels while kicks rained on the lower ones. A dreadful pressure was exerted against it. The bolt started and was bent out of the loosened sockets. It gave way. For a moment only, for, as fortune would have it, a tipped-up chair caught the lock with its back while its hind legs held on the floor, and no force except for that which would drive all before it could open that door now. Still throwing on the furniture with frenzied hands, the woman worked. The robbers thought the hindrance was the lock, so a pistol was clapped to the keyhole and fired. Exhausted, for the paroxysm was over, the woman fell, 
as if she had been shot and swooned on the carpet, fortunately for her. Her sister, at the report, screamed from upstairs. The robbers united in one grand push, burst the door in at the hinges, and tumbled over the awkward pile. While hesitating which way to go, the cheers outside started them. Fire the house, growled Garcia. No, 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 delay, cried another. Back. The rearmost turned and went down the stairs, but were received after a hail to which they made no reply from confusion with a volley. They returned in quick time. Come on, all's up, said Valenzuela. Follow me. We must save ourselves for the captain. The shivering of glass of the piazza windows turned them from the front. A similar sound warned them that the back was equally impracticable. Hell's flame, swore Garcia. I'd like to be at Fairgrove's throat for rousing the country against us. We must fight out this way. And he turned towards the entry, terminating in the stairs far above. There's somebody, began a cautious one. Somebody, a woman, and alone, or she wouldn't be so noisy. I'll silence her. And all followed Jack's lead from the upper story. Not too soon, for from three directions, the storming party came into the main room. The flashing of the shots they fired at the fugitive, showing them the form of the fainted woman whom they supposed dead. Heaven, heaven, answered Fairgrove, auguring nothing favorable from this first sight. No quarter! Death, death. Luckily, at the very first alarm, Mrs. Fairgrove had locked herself in, and the three-fingered desperado could only fire a shot through the woodwork and was disappointed there. The whole of the Mexicans rushed through the adjoining room and jumped out upon the piazza, over which they slung themselves and slid down the columns. Here, the last of them was the living target in which was buried three or four shots, and he sprang off into the air, in which he died, for it was a corpse that fell in a heap on the ground. The others ran off, fired at by such of the pursuers as had jumped through the windows upon the top of the veranda, and by others who had made the circuit on perceiving their design, and who had left the building by the ground floor. Fairgrove sprang off the top, and alighting with a shock that would have used up a man under less excitement, for he believed that his sister was undoubtedly dead and his wife at least hurt by the passing shot which Garcia had driven through the bedroom door, and after which she really fainted, woman had been silent. He took the lead of the pursuers. The flying bandits had struck off for the hills, sheltering the ranch, with a start of sixty or seventy yards ahead of Fairgrove, foremost of those following them. He was in advance of his friends by some twenty feet. The fugitives bounded up the hills as men can fly when death is the same as delay. The pursuers began to fire at them, but besides the disadvantage of firing at any mark above one standpoint, there was that of each party being in haste in motion. The fastest of the flyers had attained such an altitude by this time that they halted in the bushes to cover their comrades with their weapons, and all being together or on the top, and drawing a long breath while delivering a general discharge, off they went again down the other side of the rising ground. The chasers, pausing a moment on receiving a volley, divided into two bodies. 
Fairgrove, with the smaller, composed of the youngest men, ran on after the robbers, while the rest prudently went quite the other way to mount their horses and try to overtake the escaped ones by this means. But their scouring the neighborhood until morning was nearly all in vain, for all they found of the robbers was one dead and another dying, whom their companions had been compelled to abandon. The rest had reached the rendezvous, had been gloomily listened to by the captain, and almost immediately had started off with him to Indian Creek. End of chapter 15